If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Hello and welcome back once more to the History Extra End of Roman Britain special podcast series. This is episode five and my name is David Musgrove. I'm your host for the whole series. This time around, I'm talking to Dr. James Gerrard of the University of Newcastle, who is a particular expert on the changing face of Britain as we move from the Roman to the post-Roman period. The first thing I challenged him to do in our conversation was to give us a broad brush picture of the end of Roman Britain as he sees it. The end of Roman Britain is, is several things. There's the political end, which uh, is recorded historically in various sources. The usurpation of Constantine III in 407, the defeat of his rebellion and the failure of the central um, imperial government to re-establish control. That's, as far as we're aware, a fairly clear-cut end. Of course, things are a bit more complicated than that because we know that perhaps... 40, 50 years later, people in Britain were appealing to Roman authorities in Gaul, in France, to send support and troops to Britain. So although it looks clear-cut to us, it may not have been quite as clear-cut at the time. Then you've got, if you like, the archaeological end of Roman Britain, which is, uh, if you compare Britain in 300, say, with Britain in 600, they are radically different places. So Towns have gone, uh, the villa system has gone, the army has gone, provincial administration, a whole way of life seems to have disappeared along with material culture, the, the things of everyday life, so pottery, um, coins, those sorts of things. They all seem to have vanished as well. Uh, and in the 6th century, things look very, very different. Understanding that process of change rather than comparing 300 with 600, is what I've 
kind of spent my academic life doing. So I'm not very happy with comparing 300 with 600. What I want to understand is how we got from 300 to 600 and what the nuance, what the complexity is between maybe 350 and 450. What happened? That's a good question, isn't it? So all kinds of things probably happened. We've got new cultural influences coming into Britain from the east across the North Sea. We can use lots of very difficult labels for those influences. We can call them Anglo-Saxon. We can call them Germanic. Uh, There are probably numbers of people speaking the ancestors of old English entering the eastern seaboard. These are barbarian groups in Roman eyes from beyond the Rhine who are moving into Britain. But there are indigenous groups, Romano-British groups, who are in their own ways coming to grips with what the end of the Roman state, what the end of the Roman army, what the end of the Roman economy, what the end of the Roman legal system, taxation, what that means. And that might be a very, very complicated picture of um, peasant revolt, warlords, uh, continuities in some places. Britain, England, anachronistic to use England at this date, but the modern area of England is quite a big place regionally diverse. There's room for lots of different things to happen within the old province of Britannia. It's a really fascinating period of, of time. And there's been, it's been much studied and much discussed. It used to be called the Dark Ages by a lot of people. Not so much anymore. You might have a view, a view on that. But the historiography of, of how we understand this has changed quite a lot over the years. I wonder if you could give us a, a brief summation of how people have understood it and how views on it have changed over the last few decades, maybe longer. It's a good question. And it it's, again, probably fairly complicated answer, I suppose. To, to simplify grossly, um, up until sort of 1900, the what we were really the way we really approached this period was that uh, Roman civilization in Britain was decaying in the late Roman period, um, and that in the fifth century, incoming Germanic groups, the ancestors of the English people speaking Old English, entered the uh, entered the old Roman province. The indigenous population, so the Romano-Britons were just a bit hapless because they'd grown a bit soft under Roman rule and um, were butchered, exterminated and driven into the mountains of Wales, the uplands of uh, Cornwall and Cumbria and fled to Brittany. Um, As as the 20th century progressed, uh, there were quite a few challenges to that interpretation. And some of those, I think, come from very real concerns about the ideology that underpinned that. Which So those early interpretations really were ethno-nationalist. It was about the origins of the English. And in the 20th century, particularly in the middle of the 20th century, um, our relationship with ethno-nationalism changed quite radically. It wasn't seen as quite such a good thing. In fact, it was seen as a bad thing. And the idea of Germanic conquest was particularly difficult. Uh, and the idea of a, literally a genocide carried out by the earliest Anglo-Saxons became very difficult to countenance. And that wasn't just because people found it politically uncomfortable, it was because the evidence radically changed. 
So we went from a situation in the 19th century when we thought there were very few people living in Roman Britain. Most of it was forest. By the 1950s, 1960s, recognising that very little of Britain was forested and there was actually quite a big population. So conquering, exterminating, in inverted commas, that population um, became more of a challenge and our understanding consequently developed and we created new models which talked about how the, those incoming Anglo-Saxon groups interacted and in some ways integrated with the Romano-British population. By, by the 1990s, that had, I think, led to quite an interesting interpretive position where there were some quite extreme viewpoints so, and one of those one of those viewpoints suggested that perhaps there wasn't really an Anglo-Saxon migration or invasion, certainly not an invasion, perhaps there wasn't even a migration at all, and that what we were looking at was a huge fashion change, essentially, a cultural change driven by the collapse of Romanitas and the adoption of new cultural ideas from across the North Sea. By the, by the inhabitants of Britain in the 5th century. Where, where are we today? Um, we're, we're at quite an interesting point, I think, because we've moved back away from some of those, uh, some of those quite extreme positions regarding the Anglo-Saxon migration. I think most people would argue today that there was some movement of population, the scale the timing, the impact, all of that's up for grabs, but there was some movement of population across the North Sea in the 5th century. And what we're looking at now is different kinds of approaches which think about think about not just, if you like, the ethnicity or the identity of these groups, but the socioeconomic context in which a lot of this was taking place. Time for a quick moment to digest that because James has given us a lot of information there. Hopefully that's a, a useful summation of how thinking has changed on these key points on whether there was some major societal collapse at the start of the 5th century and the vexed question of population movement and migration. We'll be looking more at those throughout the series. At the moment, though, I think most researchers seem to be stressing the importance of the longer-term trends in change rather than focusing on some big moment of conquest or collapse. Um, but I think there is a sense that, uh, that, that things were speeding up, change was speeding up during this period at the start of the 5th century. So I wanted to clarify with James what his take is on the level of turmoil and civil unrest that, uh, that he sees at the start of the 5th century in Britain. The 5th century was not an easy time and life didn't just go on. It's a time of quite complex transformation. Uh, and you you have to think, I, I suppose, about what the late Roman world was. And, and sometimes our, our visions of, of what the Roman Empire was, was you know, people wearing togas and Roman soldiers wearing Lurica segmentata, the segmented armour, and with, you know, rectangular shields. And... Um, what the what the late Roman world was was actually quite different, and 
It's a deeply unequal society. By some measures, the late Roman world is probably the most unequal society that ever existed in the West, up to and including today. You know, there were, there were Roman senators calculating their annual incomes in the thousands of pounds weight of gold. Right? But they are the super rich. This is a deeply unequal society. And the pot for much of the population in Britain, um, they were not wealthy individuals. These were um, agricultural producers. These were farmers and artisans. And they were raising crops and animals and making things for their lords, right? For their, for their lords and masters. The villa-owning class are presumably landowners who extract rent from the agricultural producers on their lands. Those agricultural producers and the villa owners have to pay tax. Tax goes to the Roman state to pay for all kinds of things. Um, the communication system, the, the so-called cursus publicus, uh, the army, um, games, all the things that the Roman emperors spend, you know, the church, all the things Roman emperors in the late Roman world spend money on. If you take that away, if you take the Roman Empire out of that, then you might have some people uh, who are quite happy to see it go. Some of those agricultural producers might have turned around and gone, you know what, we could have a better life if we're not spending all of our time growing grain to feed the Roman army. You might have other individuals who look at that and think, hey, the Roman army's, the Roman state has gone away, but this is my chance to really enforce my power and authority over a particular region or group of people. So you could see some of those villa owners, and those villa owners, remember, are not, um, although they like to present themselves as civilised, educated men, those, those villa owners... Uh, you know, are at the top of the dunghill precisely because they're turning the thumbscrews on the people below them. And although they pretend to be cultured and civilian, what happens in the 5th century is they can adopt, if you like, martial military identities and use that to impose their authority. The Roman state is not going to come along and stop them anymore. Right? It's not going to call them bandits or usurpers. So you have this situation where all kinds of different things might be playing out in Britain. You might have people setting themselves up as warlords. You might have peasants, if you, the lower orders, rebelling against their overlords. You might have incoming barbarian groups. Um, you might have... Any combination uh, of those factors and more playing together. Let's take a, a quick moment to, to pause again. You've got a lot of information there, lots of potential scenarios, including this uh, warband model that uh, Rob Collins mentioned in a previous episode as well. But I think the, the, the point here is that James doesn't seem to be talking about a moment of collapse. It's not a dystopian situation in his view. 
Or is it? I'm uncomfortable with collapse because I think if if we talk about collapse, we we are talking about something that seems fairly catastrophic. I mean, when we, when we think about collapsed societies, we, you know, I, I suppose one one vision of a collapsed society is a sort of Mad Max dystopian world view, right? Um, and maybe there were elements of the fifth century that were a bit Mad Max, and maybe there were other elements that weren't. You might well have people running about the countryside with weapons largely pretending to be Roman soldiers. I mean, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Some of our earliest so-called Anglo-Saxon burials are probably people pretending to be late Roman soldiers. Um, But you have have these groups running um, running about Britain, probably uh, battling with one another. Uh, And you probably have quite significant changes to some parts of life. So urbanism, I'm pretty certain urbanism dies in the fifth century and it was probably struggling a bit in the late fourth actually you know the the towns uh the the towns go so there's a collapse in urbanism um but life also goes on so what we don't see is a collapse in the way the wider landscape is organized we don't see woodland regeneration we have field systems. And again, the evidence is, you know, you can't say this about every field system, but there are field systems in Britain whose origins lie in late prehistory and are still, elements of those field systems are still divide the language, the, the landscape to this day. Um, so you don't see a collapse right the way uh, across the spectrum. I mean, you know, I, I, I did my PhD years ago on late Roman pottery, and I argued that some late Roman pottery carries on for a bit into the 5th century. I think that's still true. Um, I think some late Roman pottery does carry on for a couple of decades, or maybe a little bit longer, probably not much beyond 450 at the latest. So there's something we would have seen as a collapse, which is perhaps being smeared a bit into the 5th century. There are other things. Even if you say pottery goes, which of course it does, we know in 500 nobody's making Roman-style pots anymore, pottery goes. But one of my other areas of research um, is looking at uh, late Roman copper alloy vessels, so pots and pans made out of bronze. And there are some clear uh, typological connections between some early medieval uh, bronze op- uh, bronze vessels and late Roman bronze vessels. So ironwork, you know, blacksmithing. There are clearly profound changes in the way blacksmithing happened uh, in the fifth century, but there are some some things that don't change. You know, there are some things that just carry on being made. We don't find, we don't have very many 5th century examples because we don't have very many 5th century sites. And sometimes I wonder whether some of our 5th century examples might be hiding in plain sight. So some of my late Roman vessels, bronze vessels that I was talking about, are really poorly dated. Some of those could be 5th century. Some things carry on, some things change. Um, And again, that's that's difficult. It's really easy. It's really easy to say the Roman Empire ends there's an economic, a social collapse, collapse in population that explains everything. 
It's a blank slate that whoever these Easterners who are speaking Old English were can then write their culture and language uh, and economy onto. What he's describing here is a society in the 5th century where some things do change, some things stay the same. But one thing he was clear on just then was that urbanism comes to an end. So I'm, I'm saying Roman towns die out. That seems pretty significant. So I asked him to elaborate on that point and how we should understand what happens to these urban spaces. The answer to that is probably to do with the way the late Roman state is organised. So the, the city, and to, to ancient commentators, somebody in the 5th century, these would be cities, um, the, the city was the heart of Roman provincial administration. So the way the Romans administer things, they have a you have various provincial governors, um, and those governors then administer the land through the town councils, through the city councils based in those towns. And probably in the late Roman period, the people living there are people quite closely associated with organising the Roman state, managing the running Roman state, running it. So you see in uh, London, for instance, there are late Roman townhouses that look like a bit like um, urban villas. So they're richly, richly adorned with mosaics and wall plaster and all the rest of it. Um, but the public buildings have fallen into decay. So the Forum, uh, the Forum in London in the late 4th century, has largely been demolished. And that pattern is repeated across towns in Britain. What you see is, in the 4th century, less dense occupation, um, the the decay of public buildings and those public buildings being repurposed for other uses, like metalworking. Uh, And in the 5th century... Presumably, once the Roman state goes, those populations dissipate. It doesn't mean that towns aren't ideologically important. It doesn't mean that there isn't activity in towns, but it's not urban in that sense of an urban population with industry and markets and services. Let's take a moment again, because this is this is something I find really interesting, and it ties back into what we talked about in the first episode when I was wandering around that Roman villa in Gloucestershire admiring mosaics and hearing about the unequal society that must have been in play to allow for such beautiful objects to have even existed. So I wanted to be clear here with James about whether some people in the 5th century in Britain, those at the wrong end of that deeply unequal state, perhaps saw opportunity rather than challenge in the breakdown of order that we're talking about. There's been some interesting work just published from Cambridgeshire looking at decapitation burials in the late Roman period, where these are these are execution victims, um, probably. And what we we have we can recognise that violence inherent in late Roman society and the way that violence was used to control people. And you can sometimes look at the labour. You know, we're, we're archaeologists; we spend a lot of time labouring, digging things up. Um, so there's a there's a villa in Yorkshire which has got a well which is a hundred feet deep, right? Somebody had to dig that out so that the villa owner could have fresh water. Um, not having to do that anymore, not having to run quite those 
not having to suffer under those obligations in quite the same way might have been a really positive thing for some people. You know, it might have been the sort of thing that allowed some people to reimagine themselves as a different cultural group. So some of them might have said, hey, I don't fancy being a Romano Briton anymore. Perhaps I'll be one of these incoming groups, whoever they are, the Anglo-Saxons, those old English, proto-old English speakers. Um, you know, perhaps I'll become them and I'll bring my children up to speak, you know, the ancestor of old English and wear funny brooches that my grandmother wouldn't have recognised. Um, so th- there were opportunities uh, in the fifth century. And I, I suppose, though, talking about that unequal society, um, if uh, if mechanisms of state uh, control do break down in the way that we've talked about, then if you're at the top of society, then you need to search for legitimacy. And that's another aspect of your of your research and understanding, isn't it? Is like looking for legitimacy and, and legitimising your place in the world, I suppose. Can you tell me a bit about yeah, that? Yeah, so... So imagine imagine you are a villa owner. Now, for generations, you have farmed your lands and you've maintained order, maybe with ease, maybe with violence, but you've maintained order on your estate and your father and your mother and your grandfather and your grandmother for several generations have probably done that. And you've done that in a way that shows you're an educated civilian member of late Roman society. And you could have a conversation probably with someone from Gaul or Spain of the same social class, and you would all understand who you were, how you were positioned. Now, quite a lot of your position in that late Roman society is derived, if you like, from social difference. So you are in the way you're dressing, in the way you're speaking, the clothes you wear, the house you live in, right? Not everybody lives in a villa. You take a rustic who lives in a little cottage, if you like, out in the countryside, you take them into a villa, you're bringing them into a space which is almost otherworldly, richly decorated. All of that is social difference. Saying that the villa owner is better than um, that peasant who's coming to visit, Yeah. Now, that might not be such a comfortable place to occupy in the 5th century. It might be fine while you've got the Roman legal system and ultimately the Roman army as a backstop behind you. But in the 5th century, it might not be such a good thing to say to all your clients on your estate, all of your tenants, um, your agricultural population. It might not be such a good thing to say, I'm so far above you, I'm on Mount Olympus, and you're right down there, horrible, filthy, grossy people. In the 5th century, you can imagine a situation where that elite section of society is actually trying to produce a more, what appears to be a more egalitarian um, social system. So one way to stay in power might be to say in the 5th century, hey, I'm just like you, there's me, there's the guy who runs the stables, you know, the bailiff, the chap who runs the mill, there, you know, and there's my bodyguard. We're going to look after you against the people in the next valley. So those villa owners, perhaps in the fifth century, transform themselves by adopting identities that had been previously prohibited. So they couldn't, in the Roman Empire, really 
start dressing up as soldiers and scrapping with people in the next valley. In the 5th century, they could. And that might legitimate the position of some of those individuals. Okay, So in the 5th century, what you might see is the beginnings of how you move from a civilian ideology in the 4th to the more martial military ideologies that we see as characteristic of the early Middle Ages, the heroic age. And we know that by the time Gildas is writing, whenever that is, um, you know, he, he famously says Britain has kings and judges. You know, there are kings in Britain. And you could imagine a situation, couldn't you, where a villa owner, and these people didn't live in isolation, they were linked by marriage and blood to other villa owners, other parts of the population. You could see a situation where one of those individuals could uh, coalesce the core of a regional group around him or her and arm that group to protect their lands, retain their control over the agricultural workforce. But they didn't do that whilst living in a villa. Or maybe they did, but what we see in those villas at the very end is that they start looking very scruffy. And that might be, so you have grain-drying hearths, which might be about making beer. You have metalworking hearths. What you might see there, what we've always termed squatter occupation in villas, what you might see there are those villa-owning individuals bringing to the villa the people and the skills that they need to maintain control over the local landscape. So you might want the blacksmith, right? Because you want to make things, you want you want the man who can fix stuff and the man who can make spears and other weaponry and tools. You want him close to you. You might want beer, right? Because you've got to show all the people who are fighting for you, working for you, that you're one of the lads, yeah? And what, what's the early medieval period all about? It's all about sitting in timber halls, drinking, isn't it? Yeah, well, you can see that in the Godothin, we can see it in Beowulf. You know, perhaps that's, this is one way you can, trans, you can transform from this very kind of stylized civilian elite identity you see in the 4th century to that 5th century, 6th century identity as warlord petty king. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. 
So th- this is the way that it, that we get to a society where the rule of the of the sword becomes more important because people are having to basically look to their own defences because there aren't organs of state that can that can manage that. I guess. So if you're one of those people, do you hark back to Romanitus? Do you try and uh, express uh, legitimacy at all through through suggesting you're Roman, or is that a bad thing, or does that depend on on who you are and where you are? Somebody I follow on Twitter. Um posted something recently which said the early medieval period was just uh was just people running around europe larping as romans live action role playing as romans right <laughs> and you know this there is once it's clear that you know once the western roman empire falls once western roman power diminishes in the 5th century. And that's a long, drawn-out process, right? We we go, oh, it's 410, it's all over, yeah? There's another 60-odd years of stuff happening in Gaul, just over the English Channel. <laughs> um, you know, th- those, those Roman influences are still kicking about. Um, once Roman power dissipates, every, you know, or begin, begins to decline, everybody is looking to Rome for legitimation, right? So the Roman martial identity, and that, that's one of our challenges, right? It's not, the Rome, it's not the Rome of our imaginations, right? It's not the Rome of villas and civilization. It's, it's the Rome of the emperor as autocrat, as military leader, the people are thinking about in the fifth century, and you can see that you, the earliest Anglo, the earliest so-called Anglo-Saxon burials, um, and I, I think here of one of the graves at Mucking, with has a, a belt buckle, which is a transformation emulation of late Roman military belt buckles. Right when he was buried, we look at we look at that person and we go, that person is a fifth century. We we might say that that person is a fifth century Germanic immigrant. The people who buried him probably thought they were burying somebody who was a Roman soldier. Right, and there's a whole there's a whole suite of buckles and other things that look like interpretations of late Roman military kit that are swilling about Britain at the end, about the year 400. So, um, I, you know, and we see this, we see this in the West, in Wales, right? When we've got the inscribed stones that they that become very popular and we have people describing themselves as magistrate. We have people describing themselves as protector. You know, these are Roman titles that are being inscribed on stones in Wales in the 5th and 6th centuries. And they're the titles that we might expect of people who are trying to cling on and maintain and modify and transform those bits of the Roman Empire that are still useful. There's a, a picture that James is building up here, a very varied 
and variable post-Roman world in 5th century Britain. We've got some things changing, some material goods disappearing from the network, towns certainly declining, but with that certain centrally imposed rules and obligations leaving us as well. That creates an environment where people were able to and perhaps needed or, or maybe wanted to reimagine who they were themselves. It's a place where people were taking a much more local view of their situation perhaps and where new social bonds were being forged. That idea of people potentially reimagining who they were creates all sorts of problems for archaeologists in trying to understand what sort of cultural affiliation someone might have had from the grave goods they were buried with. And we will talk uh, more about that in a future episode. But one other huge problem that we haven't talked about in this conversation so much is movement of peoples, and particularly this very contentious idea of the arrival of the Anglo-Saxons. Some academics are very uncomfortable with the term itself, but James has used it in this conversation, so I asked him to dwell on the topic a little bit more. Okay, so Anglo-Saxon is a difficult is a difficult term. Uh, it's it's contested at the moment, and um, I, I I'm using it uh, more or less as a shorthand uh, to explain uh, or to label the groups who crossed the North Sea in the fifth and sixth centuries. Now. The Venerable Bede, who's a, a later historian, writing just down the road from me in Jarrow, Bede, an early medieval historian, he tells us that um, the Angles, the Saxons and the Jutes cross the North Sea and they settle in different regions. So the Jutes settle in Kent and the Isle of Wight and Hampshire. Um, the Angles settle in uh, East Anglia, um, the Midlands, Northumbria and the Saxons get most of southern England. Um, so Wessex, West Saxons, Sussex, South Saxons. Bede was writing retrospectively and he was writing the mythologies of the people he was talking to. So presumably he would ask people what happened in the past, two, three hundred years before, and they would tell him the stories. Um, they had there was clearly a story that in the fifth century people moved across the North Sea. If we look archaeologically, you can see that movement. You can see the you can see it in the movement of things uh, and social practice. So we have types of pots in Norfolk that you can put next to pots that are present in northern Germany, Denmark. They look exactly the same. Um, there are new burial traditions. So late Roman Britain, everybody is buried. Anglo-Saxons come along, they cremate. So we have cremation cemeteries. They cremate people in northern Germany, right? So there's, there's clearly some cultural movement and probably population movement. There are a few things from Britain that turn up in northern Germany, uh, which is interesting. Also interesting is the fact that there are things from western Scandinavia, Right, so from parts of Norway, there are objects from Norway that turn up in Britain, and Norway doesn't feature um, in Bede's account really at all. So, who were these? Who? What was happening? I think people were moving across the North Sea. I think this. What then follows is a conversation about impact and scale. Right. So. What was their impact? And that then leads on to scale. 
Let's think about the population of late Roman Britain. Some estimates might put that as high as 4 million people. Population at Doomsday Book in 1086, about 2.86 million, I think. So how do you have an impact on that population? If you're you're migrating across the North Sea, 10,000 people migrating across the North Sea is not very many compared to two, three, four million people. But if you dropped them all in Kent or Norfolk, they might have a massive impact out of all proportion to their overall numbers. Okay, so one of the problems here um, is to do with the scale of migration. And what some scholars would argue is that because we all speak English and because we have very few Welsh loan words into English, that there must have been a massive population replacement. I must have been a huge migration. That leads us into some difficult territory. I don't I don't think we fully understand the process of language shift in lowland Britain in the 5th century. I'm not a specialist in linguistics, but I would say we don't fully understand that process. I don't think it follows that the fact we speak English means there was a massive migration. I think we could have a migration that was very small in absolute numbers, but had an impact that was very large. And of course, who were these people? Well, you know, the, the stories the stories we hear in the later texts, right, is that these are the conquering founders of the English nation, right, who carve out kingdoms at the point of a sword. But were they? You know, who were, who were these people? Some of them were probably adventurers, freebooters, looking for service, looking for jobs, pay, land, and going down traditional routes, right? They were coming to Britain and they were offering their service as mercenaries, as warriors to the population, just like they'd done with the Roman army for generations and generations. Some of them might have been fleeing all kinds of troubles in their homelands, right? So environmental changes, other barbarian groups, pushing them out, and they might have fled to Britain and have turned up in Britain destitute and desperate. And the local population might have looked at them and gone, hey, we could take all these dispossessed people and we could put them on this bit of land that we haven't got the labour to farm, and they could farm it and we could tax them collect rent from them and that might be another mechanism whereby these people turned up so and were they anglo-saxons and jews absolutely not right what these what these people were were they were um they were groups from beyond the rhine who the romans would have called barbarians they probably had many identities. The identities that coalesce, that crystallise, towards the end of the 5th, beginning of the 6th centuries, are probably these big identities about being an Angle, a Saxon, or a Jute. I don't think necessarily that those were the identities that were core at the start. Because what we see when we look at some of the place name evidence, the settlement place names and other things, 
Um, and when we look at uh, documents like the tribal hideage, which is um, a listing of Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, probably dating to the 7th century, what we see is there are very small groups, some very small groups of some very tiny Anglo-Saxon polities that are in the process in the 7th century of being swallowed up into the South Saxons or the East Angles or the West Saxons or the Mercians. So what I think is that during the 5th century, that mess, that complicated, all of these people moving about, all of the people in Britain moving about, thinking about who they're going to be, what, where the best chance is, what the opportunity is, what happens is that they probably coalesce into fairly small units. And they try at the end of the 5th century to unify themselves in a sort of broadish way by deciding that everybody's an angle from, you know, Berwick-upon-Tweed to the Humber. Um, or everybody's a Saxon if they live in Sussex. And eventually, those meta-identities, if you like, and those micro-identities no longer function properly. And what's needed is something in the middle. And that's where we start getting the kingdoms. And the kingdoms are smaller than those massive kind of super-regional Anglo-Saxon jute identity. And the kingdoms are bigger than these tiny little polities that we can just about discern. I'm sure you'll agree that that's an absolutely fascinating answer. There was so much to take in, so many interesting lines of thought to consider about these really difficult questions of identity and ethnicity. And as I said, we'll definitely be coming back to them in future episodes with the help of a, of a great big dollop of the latest science. But one point really struck me there. James's observation that some of these people coming across the channel during this period might have been fleeing persecution or insecurity on the continent rather than heading over here, arms to the teeth and ready to lord it over the natives. Now that's got very obvious modern resonance of refugees, so I thought it would be useful to pick up that point with James and clarify whether this was a theory or whether there was evidence to back up what he was saying. So in 410, the, the man known to history as Alaric the Goth, who in some ways was just a ro another Roman general, but the man called, that we know um, as Alaric the Goth sacked Rome. The Goths had crossed into the Roman Empire in the 370s. Um, they'd crossed the River Danube. And they'd crossed into the River Danube because they were in desperate straits on the far side. They had banded together to defeat the Huns, but the Huns had been too much for them. And the Huns had driven the Goths on. And the whole, we're told that the whole Gothic nation begged admittance into the Roman Empire. And the Romans looked at all these people on the far side of the Danube, and some of them went, crikey, there's a lot of them. And some of them looked at them and went, we've got all this deserted land in Greece we could, and in the Balkans that we could fill up with these people. They could become cultivators and pay taxes. And some of them looked at those people and thought, they're all starving. 
I can make a quick buck, right? So the generals on the scene send to Constantinople to ask of the Eastern Emperor what to do with all these people. And all of these, this great mass of humanity, they're all starving, and it gets so bad um, that uh, we're told that um, Roman soldiers were selling dog meat um, to the poor Goths in exchange for children to be then sold into slavery. Right? That's pretty nasty stuff. Yeah. Now the Goths are admitted because the emperor goes, hey, hang on, this could be brilliant. We could have loads of soldiers. We could make loads of these Gothic guys could be soldiers in the army. That'd be useful. We could settle them all on these deserted lands and make them taxpayers. Brilliant. Yeah. But of course, they're so mistreated that they get quite upset. And that leads um, ultimately to the Battle of Adrianople when the Eastern Emperor uh, is slain by the Goths. And then the Goths become this massive problem for the Roman Empire uh, and eventually um, wind up in Spain, of all places. But that's in the 5th century, right? They're not the same Goths in the 5th century as they were in the 370s, obviously. But, you know, so is it is it a modern is it a modern analogy I'm using here? In in some ways, yes. But we know that this kind of thing happened in the Roman Empire, right? The Goths are perhaps the most extreme example. But why not? You know, why can't we have alternative narratives? If we keep repeating the narratives that are written down in the seventh, eighth, ninth centuries as if they're gospel then all we're really doing is repeating the texts that are written to perform political ends, they're written for political agendas, in the early medieval period. Yeah? Um, And that, that, for me, is a problem, because clearly those texts are situated within the societies in which they're written in the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th centuries. And they may not be the truth. In fact, I'm pretty certain they're not. And uh, I, I think I think we ought to be open to other kinds of interpretation. Because that, that makes the story richer, doesn't it? It makes the story more interesting. Um, it makes us think about what it all means. And that's, that's why we study the past, isn't it? I, I would hope so, anyway. So that was Dr. James Gerard, lecturer in archaeology at Newcastle University and the author of The Ruin of Roman Britain, an archaeological perspective, which is a great read. I hope you'll agree there's been an awful lot of food for thought here in what he's told us about in this episode. And as he said, lots of alternative narratives to what might have happened. Next time, we'll have even more new approaches to the traditional narrative and new ways of looking at this period when I chat with Professor Robin Fleming.